Creative Sandbox Way podcast, episode 146. Hello, I am Melissa Dinwiddie, creativity instigator and author of The Creative Sandbox Way, here to explore and investigate anything and everything having to do with transformation through play at work and at home. This episode is sponsored by the 6th Annual Create and Incubate Retreat, September 12th through 16th, 2018. I know it feels like probably a very long way away, but it's actually just right around the corner because there are just a few spots left, and I would love to have you join me. Give space to your art, to your play for five days with me, and walk away transformed. That's right. We will play, and you will transform. And it's a very small retreat, only 12 people total, including me. And most of those spots were snapped up by returning alums. So as of right now, there are just a few spots left. And early bird pricing and installment plans are available. And you can see what past retreatants have to say about their experience and come and join us over at Create and IncubateRetreat.com. That's Create and IncubateRetreat.com. I would really love to have you join us if it feels like a fit for you. Today's episode is an interview with quantum storyteller Mike. Bonifert. <laughs> what is quantum storytelling? Well, Mike will talk about that. But really what this episode is about is Mike's life in story. Mike has worked in Hollywood. He started out as a publicist for the original Tron movie way, way back in, I guess that was the 80s. And he was the founder, the I'm sorry, the founding producer of the Disney Channel where he pioneered the Walt Disney Company's entrance into cable television with the legendary documentary series Disney Family Album. As the producer of the award-winning website for Toy Story, he introduced movie fans to Pixar's extraordinary storytelling and co-founded Network Live producer of some of the biggest online music events in history, including 2007's Live Earth Concerts for the Environment, for which he served as chief storyteller. And also in 2007, he wrote and published Game Changers, Improvisation for Business in the Networked World. And with Dr. Virginia Kuhn of USC's School of Cinematic Arts, he co-founded Game Changers, a learning company that applied improvisation to business communication. His work with Game Changers dramatically improved the performances in units of companies such as Skype, Gap Inc., The Walt Disney Company, United Airlines Media, Gawker Media, NetApp, and General Electric. 
He has conducted university workshops in public health, entrepreneurship, engineering, sociology, and cinema. He's collaborated with Alan Alda on a workshop for the Viterbi School of Engineering at USC. He's explained quantum storytelling to physicists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. He's coached Ron the Garden Gangster Finley on his famous TED Talk on urban gardener gardening, and he was the featured storyteller at the 2014 San Miguel International Storytelling Festival in San Miguel de Allende. And in 2015, he conducted workshops in Central America for the Notre Dame Executive Education Program. Clearly, he has quite an impressive bio. More recently, Mike is a co-founder and partner at Big Story, a company of strategists and practitioners who are first in the world to utilize quantum storytelling, which is an emerging organizational science that accounts for how stories are created, live in networks, and influence behaviors. And our conversation is filled with stories, including how Mike got started as a storyteller when he was just 10 years old. So with that, and with no further ado, enjoy my conversation with Mike Bonifer. So I became a storyteller while I was sitting in a tree on our family's farm in Indiana. I was 10 years old and I was sitting in the tree because if I came down out of the tree, I would have to work on a project that I did not completely believe in. And the project was turning our farm into a theme park built around rehabilitated horses which was my father's big idea. And as the oldest of six children, I was the first one that was coming online to be a hired hand, to be a worker, to be uh, a Sancho Panza to his Don Quixote, of this dream he had to build a theme park in the middle of nowhere around rehabilitated horses, in the middle of nowhere in southern Indiana. And I would wrestle all, all the time with this this awakening duality that I, I just could not resolve. And the duality was, it was a beautiful thing he was doing. We actually didn't understand how beautiful because he was healing himself from World War II, which he never talked about. So we did not know this. He never talked to my mom about World War II. He never talked to any of the kids. But I, I knew that there was something absolutely pure and heartfelt and based on love and necessary and even heroic in what he was doing. At the same time, I thought it was going to be a terrible ordeal and a failure as a business. I think some of that came from my mom on the ter terrible as a business part. And part of it came from common sense. And part of it came from getting tortured on the school bus by kids when we had to wear our cowboy hats and string ties to school to promote near the end of the school year to promote the cloverleaf riding stable and park uh, for the kids to come out. And uh, the older boys thought that was good for making sport of on the school bus and playing with cowboy hats and taking them away from you. And so I was wrestling with this. I'm sitting in the tree and I'm going, God, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And I can't fault my dad. And yet it's a, it's a, you know, not going to end well, or there's going to, there's going to be shitty on some level. And it suddenly dawned on me for, for whatever reason that 
the only place these two things would fit, these two ideas would fit, would be in a story. And then if I could tell a story about what my dad was doing, it would, it would make sense to everybody, myself included. And I realized that that was the thing I needed to do, was write a story about what we were doing. And it would be years before I ended up writing that story, but that story, uh, that myth, that moment guided me. That, that set me off in my direction of, I'm going to tell this story. And in order to tell the story, I had to learn a lot about storytelling. I had to become a storyteller. I had to do what it took to gain the skills required to tell that story. And um, so that was a big part of it. That was the start. I was way too busy do, living that story to write it. I, I was so in the middle of it for years, for 10 years after that moment, uh, as the as the theme park grew and we ended up with something like 40 horses and we built a half mile track with an arena in the infield and a concession stand and softball field and volleyball court, basketball court, lake with a beach a bridal path that was there from the beginning where people would ride and rent the horses and the horses were unruly. And because they were cast offs, they were not always reliable. And we had our share of runaways, um, nuns bouncing around, you know, on the back of a, a crazy horse whose saddle was coming loose and people's fat ladies falling off and screaming and not being able to get up and the horse being a mile away from the barn. And, me as a 10-year-old or 12-year-old stuck with a fat lady who couldn't get back on a horse and me having to get off my horse and other horses wanting to run back to the barn and me trying, you know, it was just a whole big crazy world. And um, so that was part of it. And the other part when I was a kid was that my mom took me when I was younger even, uh, she took me to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in a theater. We did, we did not have any color television. I, had, I don't think I'd ever seen a home movie. We had a little black and white TV that could sometimes get a station depending on the weather. And to go into a dark cave and be assaulted by those colors and that music and those characters and all of that was completely overwhelming. I had dreams and nightmares about it for like a year afterwards, especially nightmares. And I believe, looking back, I just did an interview with the guys that directed Moana who are writing a book about our days, you know, their days with Disney animation, which included, partly overlapped with mine. Um, I, was, I was telling them that I, I, I believe that that had a, a significant impact in me ending up at Disney. Because 20 years after I saw the movie at the Astra Theater in Jasper, Indiana, I, host, I produced a reunion show not a reunion show, an anniversary show for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, where I brought everyone together who was still alive at the time that had worked on the movie. And I was able to shake their hand and thank them and touch them. And I knew most of them as mentors and friends. And I really feel like I, you know, looking back, uh, that movie sent me on my way too toward Disney and toward an investigation of what the hell was that all about? Um, so I, you know, a mentor of mine drew the face in the magic mirror, uh, Wooly Reitherman. That was his first job at Disney. And he was finishing his career there when I arrived. So he was a connection and he would, 
we'd sit on his balcony up above the studio in Burbank and drink martinis. And I would, he would tell me stories about those days and how he made the face in the magic mirror eerie by making it symmetrical. So he only drew half the face and then he flipped the sheet over and traced the same half of the face so that when it was a full face, it was symmetrical, which is not human. And he goes, that was part of the trick of making that face. So we would talk about that and he would tell me and I'd be going, Oh, so now those are your secrets. And, uh, that's why I was affected. And, um, so that, those are the two, I think most compelling events that, uh, set me on my direction. And there's no logical connection after that. There is no amount of intellectualizing or logic or, you know, uh, correlation that would have predicted that I would end up in these places. But looking back, I think that they definitely are connected and that my subconscious was hard at work for 20 years to go and um, to get there. So the story about my dad and the um, and, and the uh, uh, theme park is called The Legend of Cowboy Bob. And uh, it's funny because it came up yesterday at a lunch. So uh, I, my life was in complete disarray at one point around the year 2000. A lot of things were falling apart, as they do in people's lives. My best friend uh, out in Los Angeles, who I had known from back in Indiana, uh, had a medical condition that got out of whack, and he ended up committing suicide. And my first marriage broke up. And... I saw a lot of money go away uh, through the dot-com era that I, at one point, technically had. I never felt like I had it, but there was some record that shows that I had a lot of money that disappeared. And I wasn't really paying that much attention to it. I, again, I was living the story rather than trying to control it. And um, I felt as if I, the only thing of value I had in my life outside my son's lives was uh, this story that I was meant to tell that I had never really told. So I wrote a screenplay called The Legend of Cowboy Bob. I thought, now's the time. My father's getting older. I would like to do this while he's alive. And uh, I have only met one person in my life that reminded me of my dad. It's a vibrationary thing. It's uh, a, a resonance thing. And only one person ever vibrated at the frequency that my dad did. And I felt it as sure as I can look at that glass and go, I, I, I know what it's like to touch that glass. Um, it was Bill Murray, who I had spent a day with years before on a job where I'm interviewing him for uh, Columbia Pictures for The Razor's Edge. And it stunned me how much he reminded me of my dad. It didn't come up at the time, but it just stunned me. I was just absolutely flabbergasted that um, anyone could project that same energy as my dad did because it was always so unique. You know, he was just his own on his own wavelength. So when the time came and I wrote the script in around 2000, 2001, uh, I insisted that Bill Murray get right of first refusal to play my dad. I go, he has got to have right of first refusal. I will not sell the script. And I had some offers from people that wanted to buy it. It got good coverage, as they say out here and, uh, could have sold it. But I go, no, Bill has got to, um, see it first, because he, he would be the, the compelling choice. And so we had a lot of people for about eight weeks trying to get the script to Bill Murray and trying the 800 number, trying this, that, and the other thing, and um, none of it worked. And finally, after eight weeks, and me being absolutely burned out in LA and having gotten this screenplay out, 
and nothing happening with it, I, I said, uh, everybody quit looking. I'll find him myself. I got in a car with a video camera and I started driving. I drove across the United States and back. And every single person I crossed paths with along the way, I asked them on camera if they had seen Bill Murray. So that ended up being a one-hour documentary called Finding Bill Murray that was me telling my dad's story to Bill Murray in an effort to get him to star in a movie about my dad. We showed it, projected on the side of our barn in Indiana a week before my dad died. It was the most beautiful storytelling moment of my life. It was the closing of a circle that I didn't even know we were drawing. It was the end of the journey that I didn't even know what the destination was going to be. I thought it was about finding Bill Murray. It was about showing this movie as an homage to my father a week before he died for 200 family and friends projected on the side of our barn on the most beautiful night I have ever spent on our farm. And that's when I didn't have to find Bill Murray anymore. That was the meaning of it all along as I was meant to, uh, this was how it was meant to be. This was the telling of the story. During that adventure, um, someone introduced me to Bill's youngest brother, Joel. And uh, Joel wanted to get the project to Bill. And so his price of admission, because a lot of people come to him and want him to get stuff to Bill, the price of admission was he wanted me to write a screenplay with him. Uh, about a, a, a junior high basketball team from Chicago. It was an idea that he had, and he, he liked my writing. He liked the screenplay, and he goes, oh, I got this idea. So for about six weeks, we spent three mornings a week writing this screenplay, and Bill was all around. This was while I was still making the documentary. We didn't know whether we'd see him or not. But Bill would call, and Joel would have to take a call in the next room, and I'd hear Joel say, yeah, he's here. No, he's a good guy. No, you should meet him. No, he's a good guy. Yeah, you should meet him. And I am so grateful that Bill didn't, as we say in the uh, in improv, solve the problem. Because if Bill had solved the problem, if he had read the script, even if he had said no, it doesn't matter what he said, if he had read it and come forward and made himself visible, that perfect moment on the farm would not have happened, most likely. And so more than anything, I am grateful. And so the funny thing is that Finding Bill Murray is coming back around because there's a filmmaker from Philadelphia making a film for Netflix and True TV called Bill Murray Stories. And, the, and he came out and interviewed me um, not long ago. And then he moved to L.A. His name is Tommy Avalone. He's like 23 years old. And so Finding Bill Murray is going to be a centerpiece of that. And he asked me if I would introduce him to Joel. And I said, I don't know. But Joel and I had lunch yesterday. And Joel's like, oh, I'll meet with the guy. And so it's still alive. And, you know, we're still interested in the screenplay that Joel and I wrote together. And actually now I would sell The Legend of Cowboy Bob as strictly a money deal because I've had my piece of it. You know, I've told my version of it. So we've got this asset that we could do something with that a lot of people still like, and it doesn't have to star Bill Murray. I never have to meet Bill Murray. You know, I, I will be forever in his debt and grateful for what he did to not solve the problem. But um, <laughs> it's created. So today I would call Finding Bill Murray a game or as we call it, a story engine. Mm. And that gets us into big story and quantum storytelling. Um, I'm kind of leaping over the improvisation part of it. 
but to, to go quickly into that, I would say that both in terms of the unex- so the objective of the game of the story engine was to find Bill Murray. That was the objective, the point of focus. And mm-hmm. I never wavered in that. Uh, but there were rules to the game, such as no stalking. Like I could not camp out and wait by a golf course where I knew he would eventually show up. I could not. The, it was kind of subtle, but the but the rules were that I was headed to see a friend in Greenwich, Connecticut, who had ALS, and that was the eastern endpoint. And then uh, that I could stop along the way at totemic Bill Murray locations like Regis College in Denver, Wrigley Field, Second City, uh, uh, Thirty Rock at NBC and hang out and just talk to people there, not expecting to find Bill or not taking direction from him about where to look or what to do, but just having the conversations. And I had so many beautiful conversations and, and the friendship would, and so the outcomes we see are, I see, and I've experienced are so much more valuable and long lasting and sustainable than the objective. Mm. Um, even the money I made, people were so inspired by the journey that I got hired for more business, uh, to, to direct a TV series, uh, for Nickelodeon to, um, uh, write the screenplay with Joel, uh, to help form a company that somebody was started that gave me like three years of income to, on this startup company that ended up being way more uh, economic value than if I had sold the screenplay. Wow. So even even that, in the economic terms, the outcomes had much more value than achieving the objective, which, okay, I would have sold the screenplay. and uh, But I made probably five times as much money with the things that spun out of the story engine than I did on, from the story itself. Um, the story... Uh, Legend of Cowboy Bob has never made any money, and neither has Finding Bill Murray, the movie, the documentary, but that's okay. They've driven a lot of revenue and a lot of conversations, including the one yesterday with Joel, uh, where he's killing it out there with his improv group, uh, Who's Live Anyway. There's five guys from Whose Line Is It Anyway that have the tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they're interested in doing branded content, other kinds of media, um, they see what TJ Jagodowski gets out of those uh, Sonic ads of TJ and Dave fame. I don't know mm-hmm. if you see the Sonic. So, you know, they're all talking about how to get more, you know, branded content, sponsored content, uh, native advertising gigs. Um, you know, so so there's a lot still spinning out of that that adventure. Um, and, and the friendship with Joel. And in fact, he was headed to the airport to pick up Bill after we had lunch. And I'm like, it's almost like I'm part of the family now. I'm like, Hey, tell the (laughs) dude I said, Hey, he's so, um, anyhow, the, to back up a little bit, um, so I was in the entertainment business for a long time as a writer producer. I started as a publicist on Tron. It was my, basically my first job at Disney and um, the original Tron, the original Tron and did a lot of work on that. And that's another one that I call t- uh, today a story engine. And I distinguish between what the film did at the box office as a linear story and what ha- w- what the outcomes were when you view Tron as a story engine, like what spun out of it. Mm-hmm. And you start looking at Pixar and Blue Sky Animation in particular as two entities that have their roots traceable to Tron. And probably wouldn't exist in the forms that they exist today 
or have the success if it hadn't been for Tron. So, you, you know, there's um, a, a trail that, that you can follow and look back at the, you know, the story engine of Tron versus the movie, which was a mediocre box office performer, but the outcomes were extraordinary. So I'm, you know, I've experienced all this stuff. I didn't really have the vocabulary for it necessarily to describe what I was seeing. But when I went to teach, which is what I wanted to do after I got out of the entertainment business, I started teaching storytelling for business. And I realized that there was something missing. And the, the something missing was it was too linear. What I learned about storytelling, Hollywood style was very linear, uh, was beginning, middle and end stories, the story spine, the hero's journey. Um, you know, the, the, the uses of enchantment, um, uh, you know, all of that, even, you know, some of the Jungian stuff and the archetypes, you know, that, that blended into the hero's journey in terms of my learning. And so to address that, I, I began, uh, studying improv. I got a client in Atlanta involved in improv with dad's garage because they were not good at sharing the narrative. They were, there were some good storytellers who were toxic personalities at this company. And uh, my solution to that was to get them into improv classes down in Atlanta to become better collaborators and share more because they were hoarding their thoughts. Mm. And they came across as very negative because they weren't good at getting out of their heads. So they disagreed with almost everybody, even though their thoughts were good thoughts, they didn't put them out there to be collaborated on. They put them out there to be imposed on people, you know, and I said, let's, let's mix it up. And so that got me down a path where, you know, from about 2001 to 2007, eight, um, I was taking improv classes and performing improv out here and writing my book game changers in, in order to, and I was back in the entertainment business at that point in order to get that education because I felt I couldn't teach anything about storytelling if I didn't have improv at least mm. my repertoire. And so I did that, uh, launched Game Changers in 2007. And in 2010, Gary Schwartz uh, and I met, or 2009 we met in Portland. Um, he told me, about, and I, I love Viola Spolin. And uh, he's the protege, obviously, the number one protege of Viola Spolin. I don't know whether you know him or not. Uh, he's up in Seattle. Uh, so Vi you know who Viola Spolin is, obviously. I know who Viola Spolin is, but I don't know how many of my listeners know. Okay, well, Viola Spolin is who I call the godmother of improv in America. She had a children's theater funded for $7,000 by a grant from the WPA in the 1920s. And uh, she had a problem. The theater was on the south side of Chicago. She had a problem. The problem was that these children that lived on the south side of Chicago couldn't stand each other. They were born and bred to hate each other. On site, the Russian Jews, the Bohawks, the Bohawks, the, the hillbillies from Appalachia, the blacks from the south did not get along when they saw each other and could not perform together until Viola created these games as a preparation for performance. And those games, of which she created hundreds, became the basis of improv in America because her son, Paul Sills, took those games and got her to help him start Second City Theater, where the games became comedy. So I always thought of Viola as the, the real uh, goddess or godmother or w sorceress of the whole operation because 
that's where its roots are. And I believe that uh, collaboration among multicultural groups is really where improv's heart is. Collaboration with community, uh, giving voice to community, all the things that Viola believed in, I believe in as a human being and as an improviser. So when I met Gary, I was all starstruck in a way, like you knew Viola. Tell me about Viola. You know, I wanted how did she coach? What was she like at home? What kind of person was she? And just picked his brain over a bunch of beer in, in Portland. And at one point he said, uh, there's a book you ought to read that Viola thought was a very important book. It's called The Tao of Physics. And in fact, Viola used to tell people that if she hadn't done improv, she would have been a physicist. I'm going, hmm, I had not heard this. I did not know this about the woman. So I read that book, The Tao of Physics, which was published in 1975 by a writer named Fritjof Capra, C-A-P-R-A. I read it like a detective novel to solve the mystery of why the godmother of improv in America would think this is one of the most important books ever written. And I concluded that it gave her insight into narrative, into the human narrative as the Tao. So the Tao and the, and the human narrative, the big story, are actually one and the same. And what improvisers do when they perform is reveal stories that are already happening in the world. Stories are in the hands of improvisers are emergent phenomena. Stories are, uh, have outcomes that cannot be predicted from the structure of the mechanism that produces them. All of these um, quantum uh, characteristics of uh, complex systems and, uh, uh, you know, morphic fields uh, came into play when I was reading that book and I started to pick up some of that language. So I wrote a blog post called Quantum Narrative based on my reading of that book. That blog post got tracked by people around the world in a pattern that I did not recognize. I'm going, why are people around the world citing this in papers and at conferences? And what did I stumble into? What's going on? What I stumbled into was a body of academic work called quantum storytelling. So the quantum narrative and the quantum storytellers connected the title of the blog post and this body of work, which is 25 years in development. Um, hang on one second. I'll get a couple things to show you. Are we visual with this podcast or is this the podcast audio is, just, is audio? Only. Okay. So I don't have to show you anything. <laughs> My Gibson. So um, I, I eventually found my way to the source of this theory, a man named David Boje, B-O-J-E, down at New Mexico State University. And it turns out the origins of quantum storytelling were in an immersive theater play that he attended when he was a professor at UCLA. And I attended as a young Disney uh, creative type. I went multiple times. And the insight was that it's hard to describe without having experienced the play, but essentially there were 11 actors in a play that took place in a big mansion or a building converted to be a big mansion in Italy in 1929. The actors would perform simultaneous scenes in multiple locations around the mansion and the audience would choose who to follow. It is impossible for an individual to understand on a linear path through that experience what's going on. You have no chance of understanding any part of what's going on if you go alone. So the game was always, or the, the interaction, 
and it was a very popular play. It ran for 10 years. It became a tourist thing to do. It became something you did for an evening with a, another couple. And then and there's a very di- popular play in New York right now that's that's the same concept. Yeah. Yes, yes, it's uh, it's it's a little bit different. Uh, what is it called? It's called uh, Sleep No More. Right, right. And uh, there's one called Yumi Bum Bum Tree in uh, in uh, London that's been running for quite a while. That's more, uh, I would say, uh, uh, Sleep No More is a little more tableau oriented and a little more. Um, how would I say it? Uh, there's there's a there's a little more of a of a, of a staging to it than just the, the capricious way you can kind of follow. I, it's hard to say, you know, it's, it's, um, it's like separate stories going on for me in sleep no more where, uh, Tamara, which was the name of this play was a coherent story. Like it was mm. all taking place in one night and it was very, um, w- bound up. Every action was bound up with another action. So there was a, a, a linear plot. And what Boji realized was, in organizations, which was with his field, there is a um, a formal structure to the storytelling, which is the play itself. Like, where are the actors going to be at different points? Well, organizations have that same kind of structure where there's a shareholders meeting every quarter. There's a Monday morning call with analysts. There's you know stand up meetings if you're in uh, if you're in agile, and so there's a formal structure to how things get done. There's OKRs if you're at Google and goal setting methodologies and so on and so forth. But how people make sense of it happens in the hallways and in piecing it together after the fact. And it takes collaborations of people, just like with Tamara, you would go out to dinner afterwards and everybody would have picked up a different strand of it or had different strategies to follow. Or one person might follow one character the whole way and another person might try to solve where, you know, the, the murder that happened and, um, and then over dinner, you piece it all together. Did you see and what happened? And when they were together and you start to get a coherence around it. And so, you know, this is just 200 audience members and 11 actors. But when you have 10,000 actors and your customers and the, glo- the marketplace are the audience, it's obviously infinitely more complex. But the structures are still valid. And so Boji began his life's work. Uh, with this immersive theater play and became the originator of quantum storytelling, which has this beautiful canon to it now of um, 22 years of a journal called Tamara that is uh, being published quarterly. So there's, you know, 88 editions of uh, academic articles about quantum storytelling or related to it, that it's all a gold mine. There's all of Boji's work. He's a prolific writer. It's very difficult to understand. <laughs> it took me a while to even get permission to go and visit Boji at New Mexico State because he gets random people just showing up apparently and wanting to see him. And so I had to run a bit of a gauntlet to get permission to go down there. And when I did, we hit it off great. We 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 became fast friends. He became my mentor. And I took almost five years to unpack this academic work, 22, 25 years of academic work, 22 years of journal publishing, all of Boji's writing. And he's not a great writer. He's a great <laughs> academic, but he, he, and he's actually a good storyteller. But when he jumps into the academic stuff with the citations and the deep reading that's required and, uh, all of the, um, 
the referencing that goes on with it to understand it, it would take me a long time to get through it and to, mm. and to, to do enough of the surrounding reading to, and, and, but finally we emerged from it, um, really just in the last year, I think where we've got a, uh, a solid and a valid understanding of how this process can be implemented in a commercial way, how this, all this academic work can be poured into, um, an effective way of, helping organizations improve their performance in different ways. So we've uh, developed what we call the um, Ergo Story Engine. And this comes from um, improv in a way because everybody knows that there's games and improv scenes. We began with my previous company insisting that ideation sessions um, result in ideas that had game structure. So I, I wanted them to have more than just idea uh, um, energy around them, you know, a subjective, uh, you know, creativity, uh, I, people's ideas of creativity, but what will it take to execute an idea? Who will it take to execute an idea? How, could, how will the idea be brought to life? Which was more important to me than what the idea itself was, because a lot of ideas can sound great in a room. And the minute you leave the room and they hit reality, you go, well, that's not going to happen. Uh, so we began insisting that I ideas uh, um, have this structure that we called ergo, environment, roles, guidelines, objective. And that was drawn from my understanding of improv and game structure. And it was when Bridget Kloss, who's a, who works with us occasionally um, and was working up in San Francisco with us, we were using this and she's been everywhere. She's got a deep history in improv going back to second city. She toured with the national second city touring company. She performed in Vegas for a few years with second city, uh, and knows everybody and has a master's degree in education. She looked at me and said, I've never seen game defined before. She goes, this is the first time she goes, I think you can really do something with this. So she was a, a godmother of her own in a way, or a midwife might be a better word where, she goes, that thing, that's, you're on to something there. And then when I took it to the quantum storytellers, the idea of using this game structure as a, a, a triggering mechanism or a mechanism that relates to the field. So in quantum mechanics, there's no phenomenon that exists independently of the mechanism that's used to observe or create the phenomenon. There's a, <clears throat> a, um, a complementarity to that. Excuse me. <laughs> a sip of coffee. So that was a, that was our a big contribution to the the canon of quantum storytelling is to come in with the game um, structure or the story engines. And I would present papers every year at the quantum storytelling conference. As I'm going through this, I would beg their indulgence. I was the only non PhD in the room usually. And uh, had forgotten most of what I learned as an undergrad besides. So I would go, you know, begging your forgiveness, but here's what I'm seeing. And they were very kind, very supportive. Um, I presented a paper in, I want to say, 2013 called Big Data Meets Big Story. Big Story being the colloquial name for quantum storytelling that I had given it. And uh, it was Chris Sams up in San Francisco who also has worked with us on occasion and comes out of Bats Theater and is an amazing improviser and coach. 
um, when he heard, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> when he heard, um, when we heard me use the name Big Story, he goes, that's the name of the new company. And uh, that was the day I filed in 2015, early 2015 for the trademark. And that was the beginning of, you know, the transition. I merged with a, a friend of mine's company down in Austin, Texas, Jeremy Carnell. And we launched the company in late 2015 at, at something we called the Big Story Conference here in L.A. Um, and it is, I, I really see the rest of my career um, having heavily to do with unpacking the quantum storytelling and making it, making it accessible on a broader scale and making what we do more scalable itself because I believe that it holds some of the um, answers to inclusion, to diversity in, in narratives, uh, to community narratives, um, it, to uh, creating more equity in uh, designs for almost anything, any, any kind of project uh, we've, got a client now that wants us to work with labor and management together. And, you know, we have people telling us, well, labor, they don't have to do anything. They can sleep at their desks if they want. They're, you know, they're inherently lazy because of the contract and really kind of harsh things about labor. And I'm I, right away, I think to myself, well, that's because they have no skin in the game. They have no what we call equity in the design of, of the, the, the work. And so, you know, we want co-creation always, and so we'll figure out a way to do that. But I, I see so many issues in the world, in business and out, related to the idea that we can't, it's an either-or situation when it comes to stories. It's either my story or yours. Whose version of reality are we going to believe? And all day long, we're assaulted with that on, on TV. The, the dualities that I had to deal with back in that tree in Indiana, they're still fully alive in television dualities and punditry pros and cons this side and that left and right you know liberal conservative and the the, the divide getting wider all the time so our work i think is about closing that divide building bridges across that seeing ways to yes and to accept both and to use the improv spirit um with a with a narrative framework that uh, constitutes our product today, basically. So that's that was really a long-winded answer to one question. <laughs> I think. <laughs> there we go. Well, it is called You're big story. Everybody. Forty, yeah, the forty-minute answer to the thirty-second question. <laughs> that is a run-on story. I'm going to change our name to run-on run production. Story. <laughs> yeah. Well, so people listening can get an idea of what what it what it looks like to work with your company somebody somebody's in a workshop with you or a, a session or whatever you would call it what does that look like <clears throat> it really depends on what the uh, issue the problem the challenge the objective is from the client so we work towards solutions now. We weren't always this way. We were always working toward our process, which we were in the midst of understanding. And I was the chief culprit of talking about our process because 
frankly, I was drowning in it. I was inundated with it. It's all I could talk about. Well, we, can, we consultants love our processes, don't we? Yes, we do. <laughs> so uh, what it looks like is, <clears throat> is us listening. And then without getting overt about our process of putting our process to work toward achieving an objective or a set of objectives. And they tend to fall because our process focuses on the six different types of business outcomes. We'll look at those first to, to look at well, what are you trying to achieve here? So we have um, 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 opportunity, recognition, solutions, identity, or you might say consistent identity, uh, community development, innovation, and uh, conversions or transactions. And generally, uh, a, somebody will come to us with one of those concerns, one or two. And, and the RFP or the business problem will relate to one of those. And then we'll start orienting a program, whether it's, it could be a workshop in sales training, uh, so, so we'll do workshops. We will do original productions, original media productions. We'll do influencer marketing, uh, story analysis. So we're bidding on a big project right now to analyze the mark, all the marketing efforts of a major university. Wow. And uh, our approach to that is going to be a narrative approach. We believe that our competitors will mostly have a data analytics approach. Uh, and then, and then from the data, attempt to extract stories and, and, and claim those as the relevant pieces or the relevant patterns in the data. The issue with that is what Paul Z. Jackson of the Applied Improvement Network first alerted me to is, is VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity in large data sets or, or complex systems where you find a lot of ambiguity in large data sets, you can draw two completely different conclusions from the same data set. So the two conflicting stories, the duality is still there. The effective response to that is to begin with story, and instead of only looking for stories in data, also look for data in stories. Yeah. So there are current stories, both inside and outside this university, that that are very much alive and in play. And we actually have to begin with those because those stories are holders of the data. Those stories contextualize the data. And the data that we're gonna find in the analysis and the stories are co-constituted. They, they are never apart from one another. The data yeah. never lives alone. It's yeah. not on an island somewhere that we're going there and loading a boat with it and coming back with just the best parts. It's not like that. Yeah. Um, I was just reading so, an article about that in in Harvard Business Review. Don't don't I sound really? so like business business like? Yeah, I, I read an yeah, article about good. that in Harvard Business Review. You're supposed to say you're supposed to say HBR. No, HBR, no, yes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> We're on to you, Melissa. That's right. So so anyhow, it it begins with a lot of questions, and uh, and we like to set up the query structure to you know we'll, we'll usually gather data. But the query structure, the questions we'll ask are narrative based. They're 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 with an idea that there are narratives already in play, and that we want to understand what those narratives are, and and that becomes the even the context for asking the questions, as well as the uh, uh, what the responses to those questions are going to be. And um, 
we find that you know most data analytics are not set up with any particular narrative uh, coherence in mind. You know, they're just elaborate spreadsheets with questionnaires on the front end. And yeah. then, you know, so you'll get companies that will have 17,000 employee surveys <laughs> and somebody's got to parse through that data and then make sense of it. And yeah. there's no thought to narrative until way down the line, six months later, and generally, that the data is no good. I mean, what good is that data if you're trying to make your story decision six months later? You know, you've already you've already let them drift apart for six months, and who's to know? So we we try to be as immediate as possible. We try to the stories are not going to change like the data changes. You, you know, you you're not constantly reinterpreting or lurching one way or another because you get blips in the data. You're going well. Everything has a story context. So is this a new story context? Is this a context of a story we're currently engaged in? You know, what is the context and how does it relate to content? And we, we bounce those things off of each other all the time. And, uh, and then we either focus on employee engagement internally, improving performance, workshopping people uh, up on their storytelling skills, beginning with linear storytelling mm. and getting good at that because... And, and I will say a mistake that we made in our second year is I was just so eager to get on with it that I would just skip right over that. I would go, well, you all know the hero's journey. <laughs> <laughs> the, the what? <laughs> oh, exactly. Whose journey? Nero? Yeah. Rome? So, uh, yeah. Fiddles? So we've had to slow down a little bit and, and get that reined in, get, get my um, enthusiasm for um, some of these newer ideas reined in and go where people are, um, use the client language, uh, what we mm -hmm. call the um, funded priorities of an organization, and mm -hmm. understand what the language around the funded priorities are. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we're working with a, a music school that um, we we actually spotted this. I asked the the uh, president of the university a, a question at an event. I go, "How many of your graduates of your music school make a living as as doing something other than music?" And he knew the answer right away: forty five percent. Wow. And <clears throat> I said, "Well, what are you doing to reach them as continuing education in order to be able to apply music?" to what they do in their jobs today. And he goes, uh, nothing. And I said, that's a lot of money on the table. Let's some run some numbers for you. And so we had our narrative. We, we knew what narrative structure we were looking at, which is stories of people that are musical with great musical educations that are doing something other than music professionally. We want those stories. Those are the stories we're interested in. And, um, they're not even really music stories. They are you know, the, the application of music to other types of, of processes and other types of performance stories. And so we're making some good headways in putting together a significant, uh, um, almost you would call it a school within a school to do the outreach for that and to create continuing education. And I think our language around that is really unique. 
I think it's going to go beyond this school. I think the school will find markets beyond its own graduates uh, just based on what we're creating for them, the lexicon, the processes, the uses across the different media platforms of, you know, how to, so one example would be this. It's very simple. Um, people that are trained in jazz or understand jazz improvisation who work in agile development mm. technology. There is a direct correlation between jazz and agile development. There are people that are musicians who are out there working with jazz, but I don't think it, you know, I, with executives rather and jazz, but I, I always find it not jazz. You know, I find I've, I've audited a bunch of those and I find, well, you are jazz musicians. That is true. But what you're doing in these programs and you've been doing for 15 years ain't jazz. You know, it's a jazz themed program you put together for these executives to feel good about something after dinner, uh, to feel like they have control over your musicianship. So it'll be like, raise a sign when you want the drums to solo, you know, do this. <laughs> oh, look, I can manipulate the band. And so... I, you know, we've looked at a lot of that and, um, I, I just think coming from a more improvisational mindset and understanding agile and limiting it to agile, if we go jazz, you know, if, if we go, if we're talking to technology companies, we're going to use jazz, we're going to unpack jazz and jazz improvisation in particular. And, uh, and we're just going to build some bridges in the, in the, you know, in the lexicon and we have some world-class musicians who are going to work with us on uh, delivering that, you know, where they'll combine performance and insights that we create for them or the bridges that we create to these business disciplines. So that's, limp, you know, inching along. I want to say limping, but it's really not limping. It's just moving the way everything moves, which is glacially. <laughs> uh, but we're, we're making progress. We're feeling, we're feeling pretty good about, um, where we are with that, with that one. And so that's, I mean, that's the range, you know, other times it's just straight ahead sales training where people go, well, we're going to, we need to structure customer dialogues better. You know, that's typical of an improv, um, gig, you know, the kind of gig that we would have had with game changers. What we've added to that is, um, well, let's understand the, the, customer dialogue as an ongoing story. You're co-creating a story. What would that mean? You know, mm. and then we'd start to look at things like, well, who plays what role? You know, where is the environment? What are the settings for the story? Where does it unfold? What are the themes for the story? So it adds a layer, I think, of understanding that maybe um, improv in and of itself, um, you know, can't get all the way there always. And, uh, I, and, I'm, and for me, it's personal because storytelling is home. Uh, and I feel incredibly grateful that I found improv along the way. You know, it's just been one of the great gifts of my life is to, it, it's led to so many things, um, including this. So, wow. Thank you. Amazing. And thank you for sharing all those different examples that, that makes it so much more concrete and easy to really wrap my head around it and, I know you have a hard stop. Yeah, yeah, I kind of do. I have to finish something up here. And then I'm telling a story tonight, as a matter of fact. Oh, how cool. A storytelling event about, and normally you're supposed to tell stories about your own experiences. 
But the theme was such that it made me think of a story about Walt Disney and his daughter. And uh, about it had to do with forgiving grace, I think it's called, or forgiveness. Um, and uh, I just knew a great story about Walt and his daughter, who I knew, Diane Disney Miller, uh, that she had shared with me at one point. And so I'm, uh, I usually don't write my stories out. I usually tell them improvisationally. But because it's Diane's story, it's not mine. I wanted to write this one out. And so I'm writing and I'm editing and I, it's supposed to be a 10 minute story. And I read through it. It was 20 minutes long. When oh. Now I'm going, Oh my God, my children <laughs> later hacking it up. Killing those darlings. Characters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, my beloveds, you're all going by. I'll save you in an earlier draft. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you in the prequel. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyhow, I do have to jump. I hope this was, I, I really was long-winded. I'm sorry. I'm just like monologuing like crazy here. Oh, no, this was amazing. I really, really? appreciate your willingness to jump on a call with me and be on the podcast. This has well, been really fantastic. Well. well, I enjoyed talking with you, and I hope it works out. And uh Let's stay in touch and let's figure out a way to work together on something. Absolutely. I would love it. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Have fun tonight. Thank you. That's it. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mike Bonifer. Let me know if you resonated. And thank you so much for joining me today. If you are getting value out of this podcast, share it with a friend, and I would be super appreciative if you would take a moment to hop on over to iTunes, the Apple Podcast Player, whatever it's called, and leave a rating and review. You, if you don't know how to do that, I have step-by-step instructions for you at creativesandboxway.com slash iTunes dash review. That's creativesandboxway.com slash iTunes hyphen review. And email me to let me know that you left a review and let me know how the podcast has made a difference in your own life. If you'd like to be considered for a listener spotlight, that's how you apply. If I pick you, we will have a really fun, relaxed conversation and you'll get to be featured on the podcast, just like Mike Bonifer was. How cool is that? Reviews are super important because it's not just stroke of my ego, although, hey, you know, that doesn't suck. But it's how other people find the show. So it's really how you can make a difference for somebody else. Because when somebody is looking for a podcast to listen to, when they search for podcasts about creativity, or about play or about innovation or productivity, or whatever it is they're searching for, podcasts that have more reviews, pop up higher in the search results. So the more reviews the Creative Sandbox Way podcast has, the more likely it is that somebody else will find it. So you would be doing not just me a favor, but other people who are looking for podcasts a bit really big favor by leaving a review. So I'd super duper hugely appreciate it. Anyway, that is it. Until next time, thanks again for joining me. And go get creating. Creative Sandbox Way. Creative Sandbox Way.
Bye. Subscribe Bye. at creativesandboxway.com slash podcast.